Good morning, and uh, we're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, or in your digital uh, devices, you can turn there, and welcome to those of you who are online. And if you have your Bible handy, you can uh, uh, turn there, or iPhone or something like that as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and we'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. So it begins in verse 1. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God, as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we, have, we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, Anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout all Macedonia. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live, and you will not need to depend upon others. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, now as we look into your word, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you remind us that you want us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you, and you give us clear instructions on how that is to be done. So we commit ourselves to your word. We commit ourselves to follow what you teach us in your word. In Christ's name, amen. So this is our fourth message from the book of 1 Thessalonians. The first message we looked at how the gospel was brought by Paul to the Thessalonians and how the gospel produced the, the church, a group of believers. The second week we looked at how uh, the, the church uh, was involved in, uh, how, how Paul was involved in ministry with the church and uh, the style of his ministry. Last week we looked at how Paul was so drawn to these people and they, they talked about the nature of, of Christian community or Christian relationships. Now this morning in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, the section that Paul read for us, uh, we focus now on the lifestyle of a believer, someone who is wanting to please God. And in this text, it becomes very clear that there is a way to please God and that God calls us not simply to believe in Him and to trust in Him, but then to move on from believing to believing, <laughs> if that's a word, kind of hyphen it out. He's looking for us to live out 
the calling that he has placed upon us. Before we dive into the text, I want to give a couple of uh, introductory observations uh, as we look at the text itself. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Thessalonians, uh, uses a specific style. He begins by acknowledging their progress that they've already made. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. You skip down to verses 9 and 10, and you find the same kind of thing. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. Before he exhorts them and encourages them to follow the Lord and please the Lord, he backs up and he says, you are already doing that. And that's a style where he acknowledges the progress that they've already made. Paul urges them. He cheers them on. John Calvin picked up on this and in his commentary suggests that what Paul is doing sets the model for anyone who is uh, encouraging others to follow Christ. He, he writes in his commentary, Paul beseeched them when he might right, rightfully have enjoined them, uh, uh, and this is a mark of courtesy and restraint which pastors ought to imitate in order to win their people if possible with kindness rather than with to coerce them with force. Paul is encouraging them. He comes at it from a positive perspective. You're doing it. Great for you. You're making progress. But let me just encourage you to go further, go more. But he starts out with that very positive approach and encouraging. And I think that sets a pattern for us as we encourage one another rather than coming off negatively. You got a long way to go, brother. Uh, we say, look, you've made such progress, and build on that and move on forward. So that's just one introductory observation. Secondly, Paul says, even though they've been moving forward, that progress and improvement are still possible. In each of these texts, he says, do so more and more. Verse 1, he says, in fact, uh, you are living this way. And in verse 10, he says, you are living this way. He had heard from Timothy probably that the Thessalonians were continuing in their walk with the Lord in obedience. But then he goes on, and he says, do so more and more. Becoming a new creature in Christ is both an immediate experience of renewal and a gradual experience. And this is what Paul is talking about. Progress is always possible. As believers, this side of eternity, we have never arrived. There is always more to learn. There's always more ground to cover. There's always issues in our lives that need to be corrected. And the Apostle Paul says, even though you've gone this far, there's so much more that you can experience. And so he pushes them forward to progress even further. The third preliminary observation I find in the text is the way in which Paul exhorts them 
by making clear to them that this message that is coming to them is not something that comes from him alone, but that he is the messenger. The word that is translated there where he says, now we ask you and urge you uh, in the Lord Jesus to do more and more. You know what instructions we gave you. The word for instructions there is an interesting word. It's translated in other parts of the New Testament as strict orders. For example, in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and uh, John were brought before the officials, they gave them strict orders not to share the gospel and to stop preaching the gospel. That's the same word that's used here. It's also used in secular Greek literature of a, of a summons to court. It's used also as the orders that come from a, a military person to a subordinate. And so as he uses this word, in verse 2 he says, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 he says, it's God's will that you should be holy. Verse 7 he says, God did not call us to be impure. Verse 8, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God. Verse 9, he says, for you yourselves were taught by God. In other words, he says, this is, this is God's mandate for you. This is God's instruction to you. I'm simply communicating it to you as one who carries the message. And so the message that we look at this morning is one in which God does the bidding. So looking then at the text, let's dive in this morning. If you have your uh, Bibles open there, we're going to look at the text verse by verse. How do we live in a way that pleases God? We live a holy life that pleases God in three ways. We're going to look at those three this morning. First of all, by living a life of purity. In verses 3 through 8, he begins to talk about living a life of purity and he says that uh, we should avoid lust. Verses 9 and 10, he says, by living a life of harmony. And he focuses our attention on love. And then in verses 11 and 12, he talks about by living a life of integrity. In other words, avoiding laziness. So let's look at each of these this morning for a few moments. How do we please God? By living a life of purity. Avoiding lust. He writes in verses 3 and following, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that you should uh, learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong his brother and take advantage of him. God summons us to holiness. Or the word that's used here in the New, uh, New International Version, it is God's will that you be sanctified. Sanctification is the miracle of character transformation. How do we live a life of holiness? That you should be holy is both a gift and a demand. We know that the scriptures teach that everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is set apart or is sanctified. 
made holy. We come to Christ with all of our sins and we receive cleansing from his atoning death. And we are sanctified. We are made holy. Then, day by day, we become more and more what God would have us to be. We increasingly experience the reality of being set apart for him. We begin the journey of moving toward more and more Christ-likeness, more and more pleasing to the Lord as we move forward. And we do this by the three elements that he presents here. First of all, by avoiding sexual immorality in verse 3. might seem a little surprising that this is where he starts when he's talking about being holy. Until perhaps we understand the pagan culture of his day. Demosthenes expressed the culture of his day this way. We keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for day-to-day needs of the body. And we keep wives for begetting children and for the faithful guardianship of our home. The Roman world, the Greek world, was a world in which sexuality was permissive. But our society isn't all that much different, is it? We live in a permissive society. Perhaps today we face a challenge that was not faced by the early Greeks and Romans in that we have an internet. And the internet can be filled with pornography and it makes it very, very easy for people to slip into sexual immorality of thought and then move on from that and become trapped in this whole sense of sexual immorality. What Paul is trying to say here is that there's something fundamentally different as a result of us being forgiven by Christ and given the the new life and, uh, and being sanctified by him that begins to transform us in the way that we behave. So he says we, we, do, uh, we live a life of purity by avoiding sexual immorality or lust. Then, then he says, by the second thing, he says that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. There's two ways of understanding the key word in this text. Uh, The word, as it says here, that we must learn to control uh, his own body in the New International Version. If you look down at your notes, if you have notes in your Bible, it will say, or learn to live with his own wife, or learn to acquire a wife. Well, that seems quite different, doesn't it? So there's two ways of understanding this. Uh, it, the actual literal translation of the word would be vessel. Uh, that you must learn to control your own vessel. And it's used as a metaphor, so we have to come to understand what the metaphor is. And in the notes, it gives it one translation, one way of understanding the metaphor. And in the text, it gives you another one. Which way we decide to translate it depends on how we translate the word acquire or procure. Someone has said that that word can also mean to possess rather than simply acquire. If you say you're going to translate that acquire, then that means that uh, uh, you're going to acquire a wife. You wouldn't acquire a body because you already have it. 
and then if you're going to acquire a wife. You should learn control his own, your own body is the way it's most often translated these days in the new uh, English translations, NIV, NLT, and others. And Christianity has a high regard for the body. We glorify God with our body. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, uh, we have that idea that we honor the Lord with our body. Uh, we respect that we hold our bodies in, 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 as, as a, a vessel that is to be used for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? Uh, therefore, glorify God with your body. And it doesn't simply refer, I don't think, to sexuality, but the whole concept that we as Christians respect the fact that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit and we use our bodies in the right kind of way. John Stott prefers to translate the translation as acquiring a wife. And he says that romance is not all that there is to marital love but it's important. Without romance in a marriage, uh, lo, lo, without romance, a marriage lacks the, the zest and excitement that can lead to satisfaction. So he says, it's the, it's the way in which you treat your wife if you take it one way. If you take it the other way, it's the idea that you, you control your body and you use your body to honor the Lord. The third point that he makes in pursuing purity is the last verse where he says God uh, and that in this manner no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him being impure means that we have taken things from our brothers and sisters. Sexuality outside of marriage robs someone else. And Paul is making it abundantly clear that there should be something different between the way a Christian conducts his body and uses his body and in a way which does not uh, rob uh, someone else of their glory. Verses 7-9, through nine, he gives us three reasons why we should live this life of holiness. First of all, he says in verses 4 through 6, uh, verse 6, he says, The Lord will punish men for such sins as we have already told you and warned you. The Lord will hold us accountable for the kind of style of life that we live. The second reason, he says that we are called to sanctification. He says, for, the Lord, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. We have to camp here for a minute and just understand that when God calls us to be followers of him, this is not simply an insurance policy to keep us out of uh, a punishment in eternity. God's call is a call to holiness. God's call is a call to live lives that are pleasing to him. And so it, in, embedded in the very concept of Christ calling us to, to sanctification is the calling to live that out 
in a style of holiness. The third reason, he says, is that the lack of holiness quenches the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, he says, Therefore, he who rejects the instructions does not reject man but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. There's an interesting word order at the, at the conclusion where he says he gives you the Holy Spirit. The word order in the original is he gives you his spirit, the holy. And the emphasis is upon the fact that the spirit of God is the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, the Holy Spirit will begin to express his character through us, which will be that of holiness. How do we live a life that's pleasing to God? By living a life of purity. Avoiding sexual lust. Controlling our body. And living out a life that doesn't rob or cheat someone else through our actions. Then he shifts very quickly in verses 9 and 10 to another way in which we can please God, and that is by living a life of harmony. He talks about love. He says, now about brotherly love, you don't need for me to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Seems like a rather quick shift from what he's been talking about to now talking about love. The prohibition against lust is not a prohibition against love. The presence of lust may often be the result of the failure to show genuine love. In a society that's cold and impersonal, where everyone is searching for someone who genuinely cares, it's easy to pass off the counterfeit of lust for the real thing, which is love. What does brotherly love look like? Not like lust. It looks like serving one another, carrying one another's burdens, forgiving one another, encouraging one another, offering hospitality. These are the words that the Scriptures use in describing brotherly love. You don't need for me to teach you, Paul says, because you were taught by God. That's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? You've experienced God's love. God has shown us by his example what love is. As John writes in his epistle, we love because he first loved us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We know what love looks like because we've seen it in the work of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to live a life which is more Christ-like, it will grow in its ability to express love. Jesus said that by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How do we measure the health of the church? Is it because they pass the test on Bible knowledge? It may well be that that's important, but according to Jesus, they'll know we are followers of his by our love for one another. Someone has said we often measure success in the church with the three B's. Bucks, butts, and buildings. Bucks in the offering plate, butts in the pews, 
and buildings that are lifted up as monuments of our success. I don't think the Lord would be all that interested in those three measures of success. He says, you want to know whether you're successful or not as a follower of Christ? How's the love quotient? How's the love quotient? Finally, in verses 11 through 12, he explains to us that we can live a life that is pleasing to God by living a life of integrity. And then he gives us three ways to kind of understand what integrity looks like. It's a life where he says, uh, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Kind of an interesting statement, kind of an oxymoron. Gotta be ambitious, live a quiet life. Probably he's focusing on the idea that we are to calm down, not get all excited or freaked out, live a life of tranquility, not inactivity. It may well be that these last two verses were prompted because of what follows in chapter 4, verses 13 and following, where he talks about the fact that they were all upset because people had died and Christ had not come back yet, and they were afraid that maybe they have missed the, the, the return of Christ. And Paul says, calm down, calm down. Uh, he, he, he didn't want them to get all excited because perhaps they had missed the return of Christ. And then he says, make your, your ambition to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to, to mind your own business. <laughs> How do we do that? Again, it may well be that it had something to do with something specific that was going on within, within the church that in the light of this uncertainty about the, uh, the, the dead who have, quote, possibly missed the Lord's return, there were people who were going around saying, did you know, did you know, what, what happened here? You know, and, and, and everybody was up in arms. And they were you know, trying to imp impact one another in terms of what they, were, what they were thinking. And he's basically saying to them, uh, don't, don't go around, you know, plugging your nose into all, all these strange and crazy things and be busybodies about what's happening. And then finally, he, he says, work with your hands. Loafers, perhaps there was a connection again. They had decided that the Lord was coming back shortly, and as a result, uh, they're, you know, we're going to not need to save any money, not need to look forward to anything because uh, Christ was going to return. And so they kind of stood on the sidelines waiting for his return. And as a result, they became parasites on the body of believers. Pursuing Christian community does not mean that we become dependent on one another, but we live lives of integrity. He wraps it up by saying why. The last couple of phrases explain. Verse 7 says, so that daily your life may win the re respect of outsiders. How we live our life reflects the integrity that we profess and it gives us the opportunity to show to the world that 
Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is transforming us into something different. Pure, loving, and living a life in integrity. And then he says, and we are not a burden or a dependent, asking other people to carry us, but that we are not a burden to others. Living a life that pleases God by living a life of purity, harmony, and integrity. So as we close this morning, a couple of questions. In what ways have you grown or are you growing in Christ's likeness and holiness? As I said as we began, Paul says there's always room for more growth. In what ways have you grown or are you growing in Christ's likeness and holiness? Another question. What new discoveries about Christ have reoriented your thinking and motivated new behavior? Third question. What have you discovered about yourself that needs to be surrendered to the Lord's refining fire? The Lord is not done remaking us and transforming us. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, give us the grace to be not only hearers, but doers of your word. Not only to admire, but to obey sound doctrine. Not only to profess, but to practice. Not only to love the gospel, but to live it. Grant that we learn of your glory, may receive into our hearts and show it forth in our lives through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. For our benediction this morning, I'm going to use the passage from the previous chapter in 1 Thessalonians, which I should have used last week, but it fits with this message as well. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God our Father when the Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Go in peace. Serve the Lord.